For our series of the ADC's Competition Talks with Leading Experts, we have today Giorgio Monti, Professor of Competition Law at Tilburg Law School. Professor Monti has previously taught at the University of Leicester and the London School of Economics before taking up the share in competition law at the European University Institute in Florence. While at the European University Institute, he helped establish the Florence Competition Programme, which carries out research and training for judges and executives. He has also served as head of the law department at the European University Institute. Professor Monti, thank you very much for your availability to participate in our Comcast series. We have debated here the digital economy and competition policy several times now. But since our last Comcast, there was a major development with issuing on the 10th of November 2021 of the much-awaited General Court's judgment in the Google Shopping case. And this is precisely the topic of today's Comcast, so a very fresh topic where we'll be able to learn from Professor Monti, who has published just a few weeks on the judgment, a very thorough analysis of the long general court decision. Giorgio, hello and thank you for your availability to do this Comcast. This was a much-awaited decision regarding a landmark decision by the European Commission. We are delighted to have you with us in this Comcast to help us crack down this very long decision. Hello, Anna-Sophia. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you, Giorgio. So, in order to start up our Comcast, can I ask you if you could give us a brief snapshot of the facts of the Google Shopping case and letting us know if you believe that this decision will help us shed light on how courts will approach abuse of dominance through self-preferencing? Thank you very much. I guess most people will know the facts in detail, but just to give an outline. So Google is dominant in the market for general search. And what happened in the middle of the 2000s is that websites emerged, which offered what is known as vertical search. So consumers can compare different websites through vertical search. Google noticed that this was a lucrative market for advertising purposes. And what it did is it tried to develop its own vertical search. And the commission's concerns was that Google was promoting on its general search webpage its own vertical search service and demoting the services of its rivals, hence the rivals complained of unlawful exclusion. Now, when you look at the judgment of the general court on appeal, a couple of perhaps preliminary things need to be considered. The general court very tightly responds to the grounds of appeal. It does not try to generalize what the law is. That is more for the court of justice in the reference for a preliminary ruling. Nevertheless, what you observe here is that the general court rearranges the various grounds of appeal to try to make the judgment more linear and to try to explain its logic. And I think the court's attempt to do so is precisely to try to craft some generally applicable principles on how to deal with self-preferencing rather than just responding to each of the various grounds. And I think this makes the judgment to a degree a little bit more logical. How much we can generalize from this judgment, I'm not so sure. Because my reading of it, and I give you a very high-level impression before we dive in, is that the court tries to answer the question of whether this particular firm in these particular economic circumstances engages in self-preferencing. So rather than trying to suggest that there is a general notion of self-preferencing which is applicable to any firm at any time, the general court is quite careful to delimit the scope of application of the abuse concept with regard to self-preferencing. So very attached to the facts of the case, so establishing basically a case-by-case approach, if I read you well, Giorgio. So in your paper, however, you demystify a bit the view that this is, and I quote you in your paper, all new and exciting stuff. Can you share with us the parallels that you believe can be drawn regarding conduct in other less technical or non-digital markets and what insights can be drawn from there? 
Sure. I mean, my reading of all this new technology cases is that we should remember there are some basic economic principles that govern the operation of markets. And some of these principles don't change whether the market is super complicated or very basic. So, for example, notions of market power, notions of exclusion, notion of anti-competitive effects. So in all these cases, what you need to know about digital is how the market functions. What is the supply? What is the demand? Is it two-sided, one-sided? But we have two-sided markets in non digital. Radio is a two-sided market and that has existed since the 1930s. So I think my hope is that people, rather than thinking this is digital and therefore special, go back to the basic economic principles that motivate the conduct of monopolies and ask themselves, what is this dominant firm trying to do? And is it trying to do things that are forbidden by antitrust, such as exclusion, leveraging, destroying the internal market? And of course, with digital, the challenge is understanding the technology, but it's not really a difficulty which causes have to rethink the notions of competition or competition policy in any radical way. Indeed, and economic incentives underlying all these are the same, whether these are very technical markets or digital markets or not, indeed. Giorgio, you also developed quite a bit on the taxonomy of abuses in your paper in a very interesting way that mixes biology and economics. Can you take us through your reasoning on that regard and discussion that you elaborate on the self-preferencing at stake in the Google shopping case, and in particular, how it helps the general court decide on whether there has been a departure from competition on the merits in this case in particular? Yeah, sure. Thank you. In reading this case, I was at the same time thinking, you know, how is the court constructing the notion of abuse and is it doing something interesting? And as I said before, because it rearranged the grounds of appeal, I think this helped the court perhaps inadvertently fashion an approach. So what I try to do with reference to biology is trying to start with sort of the family of abuses, right? And so in a sense, if you think about it, and this goes back to the answer I gave you before in terms of what are firms doing that is forbidden, you know, so with Article 102, we penalize conduct, which is exclusion which is exploitative and which damages the internal market. So from an economic perspective, when you look at conduct, you first put it in one of these three categories. So in this context, we're dealing with exclusion. But then within exclusion, you can think of a genus, so more specific forms of exclusion. And here I suggested that you can think about exclusion of rivals from the same market. So this is normally what happens. So the dominant firms feel threatened by a new entrant and they want to kick the new entrant out of the existing market. But there's a second genus, which is leveraging. And the court speaks specifically of leveraging in a couple of paragraphs and it says the economic logic we're seeing in Google Shopping is that Google is using its dominance in one market, search, to leverage into the second market, vertical search. Now, in the economics literature, there is a distinction between offensive and defensive leveraging. So offensive is when you have a monopoly in one market and you want to colonize a new market. Defensive instead is when you have a monopoly in one market and you see somebody offering a similar service and you're afraid that that new product will kill you and therefore you try to demolish the rival of operating in that market. So the United States Windows judgment of the 1990s, one of the early new technology cases, is an example of defensive leveraging, where Windows saw its operating system being threatened by online service provision, which would then bypass the operating system. So by killing the rival, Windows wanted to protect its operating system monopoly. So these two elements, the family and the genus, are where you create an economic reasoning that allows you to explain what is the logic of what this firm is doing. And 
you know, often in the last 20 years or so, we're talking about theory of harm. And when we talk about theory of harm, what we are trying to say, in my view, is tell us an economics-based story of how this firm's conduct is damaging. But of course, law is not economics. Competition law requires economics to motivate itself, but doesn't say that every conduct which is leveraging is anti-competitive. We need to have a bit more color to it, which is why what I suggested is that, you know, if you open any law book, they will have a list of abuses. But these abuses are species of abuse, and you need to relate the abuse to the economic logic that informs it. So that's what I was trying to do in my paper, to suggest that in this context, we're looking at discriminatory conduct, right? So Google discriminates against its rivals and discriminates in favor of its own services. So the demotion of the rival and the promotion of its own services. But this discrimination is not the abuse itself. So you can't say discrimination is an abuse of a dominant position. Discrimination is an abuse of a dominant position if you can trace it to a genus, so in this context, leveraging, and if this leveraging is designed to exclude rivals. So it's a combination of an act which you deem suspicious, but this suspicion needs to be tested by examining the economic logic behind this. And of course, within this, and the court is quite clear, an effects approach. So is there an economic logic and does the conduct then have the potential to cause the exclusionary effect that we are afraid of? So you start with the economics, you look at the conduct within this legal and economic context that you've designed, and then you test for effects. But the court is even more specific because it said in order for us to concepts like discrimination, we know it from many fields of law can mean many, many different things. And so the court tries to pin this down a little bit more and it says it's not all sorts of discrimination that is unlawful, but discrimination on the specifics. And here, there are sort of two major things that are relevant. First, the fact that it's a super dominant firm that engages in the discrimination. The court doesn't use this concept clearly in the judgment. It appears here and there, but in my view, it seems to model the conversation. And secondly, it looks at the specific market context, which explains why this form of discrimination was likely to cause the anti-competitive effect. So it's not any sort of discrimination, but we look, given the legal and economic context, does this kind of discrimination potentially exclude rivals? So what I'm trying to suggest is that while on the one hand, as I said to you before, the general court has a very specific factual configuration that it says within these very specific facts, there's an abuse of a dominant position. The logic in order to construct that very specific configuration is, I think, quite elegant because it starts with an economic concept, builds on it a factual context, and then says within these facts, within this economic logic, we can legitimately find an abuse. And that, in my view, is a good illustration of how you do an effects-based approach rather than just relying on the form of the conduct in question. Indeed, a much more economic approach in this decision from the general court that I think it's very important in this type of cases indeed. Now, Google in its appeal makes the claim that the commission penalized the refusal to supply but stayed away from the conditions and evidential burden required for that type of infringement. In the general court's decision, there's a discussion on the application of the Bronner criteria. What is your take on this regard? You know, when I read this, it reminded me of an old judgment uh, 10 years ago in the UK High Court, uh, Purple Parking, which is very similar to this. I mean, okay, the facts are much more banal, but it is about demoting a rival and promoting one's own services. And there too, counsel for the defendant said, this is not an abuse of a dominant position unless you satisfy the Bronner criteria. And one of the points that the judge observed there is that we shouldn't really find used labels to determine what conduct or what standard you apply to certain conduct. We need to 
judge the overall context of the conduct in question rather than pin it down to a label. And one of the, of course, attractive things from a defendant's perspective is that the Bronner criteria are notoriously very strict and difficult to satisfy. So it's very tempting to suggest to the court, look, you've got to apply the most difficult standard in order to identify an abuse of a dominant position. But what the general court here, I think, uh, reminds us is that what we need to observe is not so much whether the conduct is a refusal to deal, but rather what is the economic logic behind the conduct and are there any particular reasons why we should apply the Bronner criteria. And the court says basically that the Bronner criteria apply in circumstances where there is an actual refusal to deal. And here there wasn't a refusal to deal as such. It's not that Google was denying market access. It's saying, you can, I'm not going to link your vertical search. It was agreeing to link you, but linking you only on page five and not on the front page. So literally it doesn't fall within the Bronner criteria. And I think the significance of the court interpreting Bronner literally shouldn't be misunderstood because one could criticize the court for saying, oh, you're very formalistic. But no, the court says Bronner is narrowly defined because it's about balancing incentives. It's about balancing the invention of Google search and saying, okay, should we penalize this firm for having inventing, invented something by forcing people to grant access? But in this case, there was no apparent need to balance the incentives of the party requiring access and the party needing to give access. And so because we didn't have a situation like Bronner or IMS Health where you are concerned about giving access when the rival is trying to free ride on the dominant firm, here that free riding risk was not present. And so also from a functional perspective, it didn't appear appropriate to the court that Bronner should apply. Very well. And I think also, Paz, I think you discuss in your paper that there's other abuses of dominance to which Bronner criteria does not apply to, and that ultimately, if we take on Google's take, one could always pin everything down to a refusal to supply, basically, right? So that is, I think, very clarifying. You've mentioned already one aspect that the general court's judgment brings again to light, which is the concept of super dominance. It was silent for some years, and it's now taken a new light on the general court court's judgment and also the concept of special responsibility. How do you read the general court's judgment in this regard and what implications do you think that this can have for abuse of dominance cases? Let's start with superdominance. So as you remarked, uh, this makes a bit of a return. So a couple of advocates general had discussed this in the past in relation to liner conferences in the early 2000s, and then the advocate general in post referred to it. Now, I guess if you look at some of the other judgments of the ECJ on firms that enjoy positions of superdominance where the notion is not mentioned, you do find a reflection that firms that hold a special or exclusive right granted by the state are in a special position. So the duties they have are different because because they are kind of gateways to the market. They influence the market in a way which is much more profound than a firm like Intel can ever do. They systematically affect the market access of others. And superdominance has also within its notion an idea that entry barriers are extraordinarily high. So whilst somebody could potentially compete against Intel, it's highly unlikely that anybody's going to be able to compete against Google search. So what the court is saying here is that superdominance is a notion which is reserved to situations where we cannot really expect a realistic competitor to come in. And normally that is the case when the state protects it, right? So we know from the economics textbooks that the one barrier to entry that everybody agrees to is the state giving you a monopoly. So we should be very cautious of saying there are many other firms that are likely to be super dominant in the same respect. But the general court here feels that it is justified in feeling that Google enjoys a super dominant position because of the way it provides a gateway to the internet, I think is the phrase the court uses. So I think the first thing to note of super dominance is what is the notion? And I think the notion is very similar to the holder of exclusive right. The second thing is 
what is the implication of a firm being super dominant? And my take here is that greater power entails greater responsibility, to coin a phrase. That is to say, the more dominant you are, the more conduct will be likely to be seen as an abuse of a dominant position. So conduct, which would not be an abuse if your market share is 45%, becomes an abuse because you are super dominant. So self-preferencing by a firm which is not super dominant may not be an abuse of a dominant position. That, that's, I think, the first take. The second thing is that there may be certain types of abuse which are very specific to it and certain types of responsibilities that you have that are very peculiar to it. So if we think about the notion of special responsibility, remember that originally, the first time the Court of Justice mentioned this in Michelin in 1983, it was in relation to dominance. It wasn't in relation to abuse because Michelin said, you're penalizing me because I am the most successful tire manufacturer in Europe. And the Court of Justice said, no, 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 being dominant isn't a penalty. Being dominant creates a special responsibility. It was only in the late 1980s and early 1990s that the court began to use the concept of special responsibility to help it interpret the nature of an abuse of a dominant position. And so it's a general principle that is of more recent application. And many scholars think, well, it doesn't really mean much, does it? Because after all, we're looking for the abuse. We're looking for the conduct. We're looking for the economic context. And whether or not you have a special responsibility or not is neither here nor there. But I think it helps the court in understanding what conduct is to be expected of the dominant firm. And so it puts the dominant firm in a situation where it says, watch what you're doing, because the fact that the conduct is lawful, because it doesn't reach any other laws, or that the conduct is lawful if it were practiced by a non-dominant firm, does not automatically mean that it is lawful because you're dominant. Your dominance creates a need to carry out a different type of risk assessment than the risk assessment that the non-dominant firm would carry out. So I think the notion of special responsibility helps the court shape the nature of the abuse of a dominant position. And if you link it to superdominance, what the court seems to say is that the duty to guarantee equality of opportunity for rivals is a special responsibility that only superdominant companies have. Again, if you look at ordinary re rebate cases, I mean, Intel is a judgment where we're also waiting regularly for the general court to respond. I mean, a firm like Intel does not have an obligation to grant equality of opportunity to all its rivals. It just needs to make sure that the market is not distorted by its conduct. But the scope of responsibility of a firm like Google is much more extensive. And it might even be that it has to allow rivals to come in who are not yet as efficient as it. So the court in this context also explains that the as efficient competitor test is an appropriate test to apply for pricing abuses, but we don't really need to think about it here. And I think that one of the reasons we don't need to think about it is because the firm's super dominance means it has to facilitate market access, irrespective of who accesses the market, because it is the gatekeeper. And from an ordo liberal perspective, what you want to promote is market access, not necessarily that this market access guarantees consumer welfare, but if you don't give firms an opportunity to come in, then we don't have an opportunity to discover whether or not consumer welfare can be enhanced. Indeed, and that puts also much expectation on what final configuration will DMA take, how will be, it will be implemented, and certainly both will put a lot of pressure to digital gatekeepers because there's the DMA on the one hand, and on the other hand, a decision by the court that is treating gatekeepers as super dominant as having a special responsibility. Georgia, thank you so much for taking us so clearly through a complex judgment and such an important one. It was absolutely a delight to do this podcast with you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity for the nice questions.